Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing our series, The Power of the Gospel, with a message titled, The Golden Chain. So turn in your Bibles to Romans 8, 29 to 30, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Chains are interesting things. Their function is to attach one thing to another. Often when we think of chains, we think of something that is worn by slaves or prisoners. And so, for instance, we remember that the Apostle Paul was chained. In 2 Timothy 2 verse 9, he writes, I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. But chains, as we all know, have many uses. I have a timing chain in my automobile that relates my engine crankshaft to the valves and ignition system. I have a chain on my bicycle, transferring the energy from my pedals to the gears in the rear wheel. I have another chain I use to ensure that my bike can't be stolen. I understand that on ships on high seas, there are cables that lash a man to the deck of a ship, keeping him from being washed out to sea. Chains are either positive or negative, depending on how they're used and how they relate to us. But however chains are used, their advantage is their strength. They ensure that the things that are chained together are not separated, the prisoner is not separated from his guard, and the sailor is not separated from the ship on the high seas. So in Romans 8, 29-30, we find a passage of Scripture that has historically been called the golden chain. It's called that because it describes five links in a chain that bind every believer eternally to God. We cannot be separated from our God. This is especially valuable because sometimes in our minds, the nature of our relationship to God can, depending on our circumstances, be in question. What happens when I fall or when I sin? Why am I suffering as I am? Will God still think of me as his child in the future? Is my relationship with God as secure as I want it to be? But what if God constructed a chain and then chained you to himself? So let's read Romans 8, 29 to 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, as I've said, these two short verses describe what has throughout the history of the study of this passage often been called the golden chain. Let's examine each of the five links in this golden chain that binds us to our God. The first link is found in verse 29, those whom he foreknew. Now, typically, when we think of foreknowledge, we think that it must mean that God knows what's going to happen before it happens. And so following that line of thought, we think that as God looks down the corridors of time, he's able to see who would choose to believe, and on the basis of that, predestines them to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, to be plain, foreknowledge must mean that God is able to perceive what's going to happen before it happens. But if this is all that foreknowledge means, then there's no reason to see this passage as a golden chain that binds us to God. Instead, foreknowledge would simply mean that God knows what you're going to do in advance. But there is so much more to foreknowledge than that, and and we already get a sense of that when we read this text. Our text speaks of those whom he foreknew. If all Paul was trying to communicate is that God knows in advance who will believe in him and who will not, then the wording seems strange. Those whom he foreknew refers to the children of God. God specifically foreknew a select group of people. 
Now, this implies that Paul has not just God's knowledge of the future in mind, rather a relationship that God has in advance to a select group of people. Now, that's completely in line with what Peter expresses in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. There, Peter begins his letter by addressing those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, Peter's not speaking of a literal exile as he opens the letter, but of the experience that all believers have as they recognize that the world they live in is not their home. And so the phrase, the elect exiles, refers to the chosen people of God who, according to verse 4 of 1 Peter 1, long for an inheritance kept in heaven for them. Then on to the next verse in 1 Peter 1 verse 2, speaking of the elect exiles, he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. When Peter, just like Paul, speaks of foreknowledge, he speaks of God's foreknowledge of a specific group of people, the elect, the chosen ones. Well, this fits very well with how the word to know is used in the Old Testament. So, for instance, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, we read, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. You know, the Bible's not squeamish about mentioning sexual relations, and yet when it wants to talk about the sexual relations shared by Adam and Eve, it uses the word to know. That's because in the Bible, to know expresses the idea of a deep intimacy. So then when God knows his people, there are, of course, no sexual overtones, but the idea is that God is intimate with his people. Indeed, the idea that God loves his people is at the heart of the kind of knowing he has with his chosen. Now, let's combine what we've learned about knowing and intimate love with the idea of foreknowing. One of the best examples of that is found in the book of Jeremiah when God called him to be a prophet. Let's listen to how that's described in Jeremiah 1 verses 4 to 5. Now, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, this word from God must have startled Jeremiah. Before you were formed in the womb, I already was intimate with you, so much so that I set my affections on you, or before you were born, I loved you. Furthermore, out of my love for you, or because of my love for you, before you were born, I already set you apart and chose you as my prophet. And there we see the biblical idea of foreknowledge. God was already intimate with his chosen people long before they were born. He didn't just look down the corridors of time. He already knew his people in a loving fashion before they came to be. And that is the first link in the golden chain that binds us to God. And it's a precious thought. It was not my doing that bound me to God in this golden chain. It was God himself who forged the first link in the chain. He foreknew me. John Murray wrote that to foreknow is virtually equivalent to whom he foreloved. And so from this chapter, we get a sense of the divine love of God that he has for his people before they came to be. In the next chapter, in Romans 9, verse 11, Paul will speak about God's call to Jacob and God's love for Jacob and will say, before he had done anything, good or bad. And so that first link that binds us to God is indeed a precious link. For many of us, the links that bind us to God are the links of our choices, our faithful lives, our demonstrable love for God, and that's the link that we forge. But here Paul turns the matter around. The first link that binds me to God was forged by foreknowing and foreloving, the foreloving hand of God before I was born. Let's then examine the next link in the chain that's found in verse 29. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, here I fear that some of us will no longer listen to Paul. The minute we hear him and we hear him use the word predestined or predestination, we've already turned him off. We tell ourselves, I don't actually believe in predestination. I believe in free will, and so we stop listening. Now, before we go any further, let's agree that the words to predestine are not at odds with the idea of freely choosing. Now, at the outset, it must be admitted that whenever we find Paul using the words to choose, he never uses it to speak about our choice, but rather God's choice. And so, for instance, in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 4, Paul writes, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. As much as some of us might struggle with that, this kind of language gets repeated not just in the letters of Paul, but in the language of Jesus as well. In John 15, verse 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, I could go on and share literally dozens of texts that speak the same way, but simply doing so doesn't solve some of our problems, does it? For one, this matter seems unfair to us. And for another, this matter makes human beings appear to be robots, programmed to either love or reject God, depending on how God packages the machine. But however we understand this matter of predestination, it is never presented to us in that way. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 4. God has chosen you, said the Apostle Paul. And then in the next chapter, and I'm reading from chapter 2 verse 13, Paul will say, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. And there Paul says, I'm so grateful to God that you didn't reject what we said, but accepted what we said. And when we come back, I hope to show that free will and predestination are two sides of the same coin. They are not opposite concepts at all. When we come to this passage talking about the golden chain, it gives us a picture of how we are bound to God and his love. For those who are in Christ, we learn that God foreknew us before we even existed, and He is the one who chose us to be His children now and forever. But then Paul introduces this word, predestined, a concept that may be difficult to swallow. But after the break, Dr. Neufeld shows us how the Bible teaches the doctrine of predestination without diminishing our free will. There is nothing that happens apart from the hand of God. He rules everything. That's the theme of Back to the Bible Canada's annual scripture calendar. The 2024 In All Things scripture calendar reminds us every month in beautiful images, scripture, and inspirational thoughts that God is ever-present. It also contains exclusive quotes from Dr. John Newfeld's new book, available in the new year. It's our hope that this wall calendar resource, complete with a one-year Bible reading plan, will encourage you and help you maintain a spiritual discipline of daily Bible reading in the new year. As part of our commitment to providing biblical resources without barrier, we're offering this calendar for free just for the asking. To request yours today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20, Paul describes an essential aspect of his ministry. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now we notice here that the same Paul who in Ephesians 1 verse 4 would speak of God's choosing his elect from before the foundations of the world would also urgently plead with men and women to be reconciled to God. Obviously, Paul didn't think that the eternal plans of God and the very real personal choices that we are called upon to make are at odds with each other. Imagine you're looking at the same phenomenon from first through a microscope and then second from space through a wide-angle lens. Through the microscope, things look so very different than they do through the wide-angle lens, and you might be excused for thinking that the two vantage points really reflect a very different reality, but they don't. The same is true about the individual choices we are all called upon to make when it comes to the gospel. See, I remember personally my own struggle that was going on within, and the final step that I took as I, in an act of free will, surrendered myself into the loving hands of Jesus. But there is a wide-angle lens that tells me, chosen from before the foundation of the world, and it will do absolutely no good to deny either one of these two realities by trying to blunt the force of each of them. See, some try to do so by making it sound like our free choice is not a free choice at all. And others try to do so by denying that God took the eternal initiative from before the foundations of the earth, that his choosing is long before I came into existence. See, in Romans 8.29, it's not Paul's design to explain exactly how this works. He does that in far greater detail in Romans 9, but for now, he simply wants us to know it so that we can gain a certainty in our salvation. I deeply appreciate J.I. Packer's comments in his little book entitled Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Packer points out that even though some Christians will deny God's choosing of them for salvation, and yet, he says, at a deep and profound level, all Christians seem almost intuitively to understand it. Here's what he writes. Two facts show this. In the first place, you give God thanks for your conversion. Now, why do you do that? Because you know in your heart that God was entirely responsible for it. You didn't save yourself. He saved you. And there's a second way in which you acknowledge that God is sovereign in your salvation. You pray for the conversion of others. You ask God to work in them everything necessary for their salvation. On our feet, we may have arguments about it, but on our knees, we're actually all agreed. <laughs> now, that's exactly what Romans 8.29 teaches. If God foreknew us in the sense that he intimately loved us before we were born, then, says Paul, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. Since Romans 5 to 8 emphasized the need for believers to experience the internal transformation that God brings in the life of believers, that once we come to believe, our work begins in us so that we progressively grow in holiness, we turn our backs on the flesh, we turn our faces to the life of God, then, says Paul, God predestines that this process will not fail. See, at this point, it's necessary to address the question of once saved, always saved that gets raised here. Here's my take on this difficult question. If we understand once saved, always saved to mean that once we've prayed the sinner's prayer, then no matter how we live, or even if we never grow in holiness or love for God, yet we're still going to go to heaven when we die, if this is what we mean by saying it, I'm fairly sure that the Bible does not teach that. 
In Romans 11, verse 22, Paul writes, Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you provided you continue on in his kindness. Or consider Colossians 1, 22 to 23. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. I mean, we could go on and on, quote more verses, but let's be clear. The Bible does not hold out hope for those who will not follow the teachings of the gospel. But let's say we understand once saved, always saved in a different manner. Or let me suggest we stop using the phrase, once saved, always saved, and replace it with another phrase that is not so easily misunderstood. See, I believe in the phrase, the perseverance of the elect. By that, I mean that those who are foreknown by God and therefore predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus show that this is the case by persevering in the faith all the way to the end. See, here we notice two different perspectives. There are those who argue that you can lose your salvation and those who, like myself, think the Bible teaches that we cannot. But both sides agree on this. If you do not persevere in the grace of God, you will not be saved. But from the perspective of Romans 8.29, we need not fear. For there is a golden chain that binds us to God and the God who foreknew us, predestined that we would be fully conformed to Christ. He who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. Don't fear. Now, the third link in the chain is this. And those whom he predestined, he also called. The idea of calling refers to the hour in which we believe. Some Bible teachers speak of the difference between a general call that goes out to everyone and an effectual call that draws us in to become the child of God. Clearly, in verse 30, Paul is not speaking about the general call. Rather, he refers to the moment the Holy Spirit drew us to become his own. You know, my heart's flooded with memories, but one stands into the foreground. A young man who was raised in an atheist home came to see me years ago, and we spent several hours in my office discussing God and the Bible, the meaning of the cross, whether miracles were possible. I mean, the conversation was wide-ranging. At one point in our conversation, I had a very deep conviction. I said, look, I don't want to abuse the privilege of our conversation right now, but I have a distinct feeling that right now the Holy Spirit is calling you to Christ. And I'll never forget his response. He said, is that what it is? I have a feeling that my heart's on fire right now. And with that, the two of us bowed our heads and at the table in my office and acknowledged the real presence of Christ, the Lord of glory in my office. And I watched as he surrendered his life in the hands of Jesus. And that is an effectual call. And now, let's go to the fourth link. Those whom he called, he also justified. God's effectual call enables those who hear to believe, and all who believe are justified. Christ's death on the cross was paid for their sins. None of their transgressions count against them anymore. Christ suffered and bled for them, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then the fifth link in this chain. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. You know, the idea of glorification has already been discussed in this chapter. We are the children of God, and if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. And we have been chosen to rule and reign with Christ, having dominion over all the works of his hands. You know, Romans 8, 29 to 30 really presents us with a chain that binds us to God. The five links in this chain are unbreakable, for they have been forged by God himself. God is pictured as choosing us from eternity past to preserving us into eternity future. 
We, the people of God, are bound to our God. God is behind us and God is before us. You know, some time ago in a Bible study, we had a discussion as to whether it was possible for us to desert the faith under the right or the wrong conditions. I'll never forget what one man in our group said. He said, I'm quite capable of walking out on Jesus at any time. There's enough of the flesh in me that calls me away from God, and there are enough sorrows in this life that would make me profoundly angry with God. But while that's all true, I also have seen another truth. God seems determined never to let me go. And so I guess the real answer is, I can never walk out on God. Indeed, that is the chain that binds all his children to their God. And when God forges a chain, he accomplishes what it was intended for. John, this is a loaded message with a a lot of important words there. And some of these words have actually caused division within the church. Uh, But is there a way that we can look at this and say, how does this unify us as a church? Yeah, absolutely. See, I already made mention of the fact that the word predestination is already a divisive word among many believers. And uh, and, uh, the more we mention words like that, the more we uh, suspect one another. I think it would help us all, regardless of where we stand on how we work this matter out, to at least acknowledge the scriptural words and, and when we use them, acknowledge that the words come from the Bible. That, I think, would be a good starting place. Uh, and then recognize as well that there is a perspective that God has, and there's a perspective that we have, and sometimes those two perspectives look different. I can, uh, you know, approach God and recognize my struggle to obey Him and, and my struggle to work out my holiness, and those are real struggles. A God who sees things the end from the beginning and who has called me from before the foundation of the earth. And again, I mean, that's a biblical concept. I mean, so we, we need to recognize and acknowledge the words that God has used. So let's be gentle with one another. Uh, let's understand one another. Uh, let's also attempt to understand the Bible language. And let's, by all means, not divide. What an encouraging message today on how the golden chain of Romans 8 means that true believers will never desert their faith once and for all. No, God is able to keep us in His love and grace, for we were chosen by Him. Well, on tomorrow's program, we continue this series looking at how God is for us in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 37. So don't miss the power of the gospel with Dr. John Newfeld. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. The command to make disciples is not just for church leaders or congregations. It's for every believer and every ministry effort in Jesus' name. Back to the Bible Canada is a disciple-making ministry through its teaching, broadcast, and publications. One of these resources includes the bi-monthly Truth and Life magazine. Each issue features engaging and thoughtful writings from Dr. John, Lafagaine's Phil Calloway, and guest authors discussing critical themes of faith. We encourage you to subscribe today to receive a free copy of our December issue mailed directly to your home. Now's the time to sign up if you haven't already. You won't want to miss the special Christmas reflections coming in the December issue. 
To subscribe or for more information, visit us at backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.